This is Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog, and sitting in for my sidekick, Jesse Single, while he is off on a mission trip to the Sentinel Islands, today we have guest host Susie Weiss. Susie is a former writer for the New York Post and a current writer for the Free Press, where she has reported some of my very favorite free press stories, including ones we've discussed on this very show before. Uh, the story about the Park Slope Panthers. Hell yeah. That was Susie. That was a, <laughs> a hilarious piece about her time with an upper class vigilante group that was attempting to make Park Slope safer for golden retrievers and people. Uh, she also recently wrote about her time with Fergie Chambers, an heir to the Cox family fortune who is spending his millions bankrolling bail funds for Oberlin students and other causes like, of course, ushering the impending communist revolution any minute now. Uh, Susie also contributes to the much-loved free press column TGIF and is, I believe, the brains or at least the brawn behind the whole operation. And I am absolutely delighted to have her sitting in for Jesse today. Susie Weiss, welcome to Blockton Reported. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I think I, you guys were selling Park Slope Panther merch, right? <laughs> I don't know if anybody actually bought them. Uh, but yes, we did have them in our horrible merch shop for a while. <laughs> I think I'm the o- one of the only people who has the OG Park Slope Panthers t-shirt that Chris, the organizer, gave away at that meeting. I covet it. Oh, yeah. It's like it's it's an, I'm, I'm thinking of auctioning it off to to some of the primos on the Reddit. I will I will trade you for that. I will send you one of our shitty Park Slope Panthers shirts for your <laughs> fair deal. Yeah. Uh, fair deal. Exactly. I also want to I, I mean, I don't know if anyone even cares, but there's an update on Fergie Chambers, which is that he's reverted to Islam. Oh, I heard about this. I, I have. I'm also a con- <laughs> uh, convert. So I feel like Fergie's my brother now. That seemed like the most inevitable twist in this story. It was always going to end with Fergie Chambers converting to Islam. Living in Tunisia. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Wait, did he actually? I did move? not see it coming. Did he actually? Yeah, he lives in Tunisia now. <laughs> how, are, how, how are the taxes in Tunisia? <laughs> yeah. Probably saving a bundle. Oh, my God. But do you want to hear the real reason I came on the show? Of course. I mean, I, I love Lock. I, I listen to it all the time. But I um, I was dating this guy over the summer who I won't say his name. And he was like the biggest blocked and reported head in the world. He was obsessed with you guys. <laughs> and so you broke up with him. Understandable. Katie, he ghosted me <gasps> beyond. He ghosted me like I've never been. Go- six dates. <gasps> literally like text him like, hey, nothing wow. like like poltergeist. This person like may have evaporated. Like, is he dead? No, because I checked his Instagram story. And I have this amazing opportunity that yeah. very few scorned women have to get directly in his earballs right now. Say his name. No, I can't. <laughs> say his name. <laughs> I won't say his name, but it's like I I just want you to know, like I'm on the show, and, <laughs> and I invited you to the holiday party, and you could have gone. It was such an unbelievable ghosting. It like made me doubt. Like my sanity, was I was like, yeah. did I scream a slur in the middle of dinner? Like, <laughs> did I take my top off at the bar? Like, did something extremely weird happen to go no contact? And it was a setup. So it's a little like, oh, God. Uh, but um, yeah, that's why I'm here. I feel I, I have I have no message for him. Um, other than to say <laughs> hello. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're doing well. Hope you're not dead. Um, but 
Yeah, that's it. Well, that is the absolute best revenge. Yeah, exactly. The best revenge is served on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have a great show planned today. In the second half of the show, I'm going to tell you, Susie, about a battle in Portland over an eviction. Mm. But before we get to that, Susie, I have some questions. Uh, first, you are, for some reason, friends with Jesse in real life. Do you have any humiliating stories you would like to share? Feel free to make them up. You know, I hesitate to go public with the fact that me and, and Miss Single are basically next door neighbors. We live on the same block. Andrew Sullivan is also there. Jamie Reed, (laughs) Ariel Pink, and Ann Coulter perform at the block party. No, but me and Jesse are really neighbors, and we run into each other all the time, and it's always like... I, I always say the same thing. I always get, you're so fucking tall. I know. Um, but it's shocking. It's shocking. He just seems he, like a small woman. He really does. He carries around this, like, black Jansport backpack. Of course he does. Um, and I'm like, I, I always have the, like, the thought flashes, like, if you see something, say something. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, it's Jesse. Like, it's fine. Um, and I do, I do feel good and on our block because there is a massive police station in between me and Jesse to protect me from Jesse. So oh, yeah. that's always good. Does he wear shorts in winter? He seems like the kind of guy who would wear shorts in winter. <laughs> well, I was I, I I like was thinking about him. I'm like, he seems like the kind of kid who wore like his ski coat zipped up to his neck <laughs> during class, like all during class. Sure. But um, the cargo shorts. I don't know. I feel like I'd remember seeing his knees. Yeah, he shows them I off. Don't, I don't know if he wears They're shorts. They're his best feature <laughs> that he shows them off. His shapely yeah. knees. <laughs> okay, Susie, before we get to Portland, I have a few questions for you. So today people are probably most familiar with the, with your work for the Free Press and before that the New York Post. But you published a piece in the Wall Street Journal all the way back in 2013 when you were just a senior in high school. And this piece went very viral and not really in a good way. So let's start there. Tell me about that piece. Oh my! I I, I reread it recently, mm-hmm. and for a while, it's good. It's awesome. <laughs> I kind of want to be like, oh no, like no one wants to be defined by the story they wrote when they were but seventeen. I'm like, no notes. Like it was pretty on the nose. I mean, I definitely wasn't the first cancellation ever, but I would say I was pretty early on. Uh, so the story for those who who don't keep up with my oeuvre is that I applied to all these fancy colleges like Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, UVA, you name it. I got rejected from all of them, literally every single one. I I think I might have gotten waitlisted at WashU, but I I would not put money on it. And like, this is the part where you're supposed to say like, oh, oh my God, it was a crapshoot. Like, I knew I'd be happy anywhere, but I was so pissed. Like, (laughs) I was such a little freak. I was on the debate team. I was a Senate page. Like, Jesus. People call me entitled, but like, does that not entitle you to a spot at Vanderbilt? Like, <laughs> I mean, where, why else would you do this? Exactly. I mean, I could have been smoking weed that whole time. I mean, yeah, I got into college. So I got all these rejections and I was, I was genuinely shocked and I was extremely jealous of my neighbor who got into Penn and I let it rip. I wrote it all down. Um, as like this, you know, satirical essay, like what I could have done right to get into college, like have perfect SATs and two moms mm-hmm. and, you know, better diversity. Uh, and I, it got published in the journal and then it went so viral. It was I think it was the second to Amy Chua's uh, essay on being a tiger mom. And we were like going to war with Iran or something. And this and this was just like going absolutely bonkers. I mean, within days I was on the Today Show I didn't even have Twitter then. I barely used my computer, but like I was getting hate mail sent to my high school um, and it was just 
it was just insanely overwhelming. I went on uh, morning TV to set the record straight. And then, you know, of course, I said, I'm never talking about this again, but it comes up all the time. Right, right. It, it's a funny piece, albeit one that I don't think would get published today. You're basically making fun of yourself as well as overly ambitious high school students, the people you were jealous of and their attempts to make themselves look special right. to get into school. Like, I'm going to read you a line from it. Quote, had I known two years ago what I know now, I would have gladly worn a headdress to school. <laughs> Show me any closet and I would happily have come out of it. Diversity. I offer about as much diversity as a salting cracker. I think that you're at least matzah, not salty. Oh, Katie. But your critics, yeah, you're welcome. Your critics really did not seem to realize that this was written in jest. Like Forbes published a response called Susie Lee Weiss in the Age of Entitlement. The Daily Mail covered it, the Washington Post. Yes, you were on the Today Show. And you were dragged all over media as well as social media. I think this was the first thing I knew about you before I knew your sister even, uh, who is, I guess we should mention Barry Weiss. Uh, and this was back in 2013, so well before we had the concept of cancel culture or call it culture or whatever you want to Call in culture. Call in culture, call out <laughs> culture. Uh, so what was this experience like for you as a high school student? I mean, I it seems like it would be horrible. I mean, the most insane part of this is that I used my middle name. That is the craziest <laughs> part of this entire thing. Like, I like oh, like that is Susie really... Susie Lee Weiss. <laughs> Susie Lee Weiss. <laughs> Who is she? What is she up to? Um... You know, how did it affect me? It's like, it's crazy. It didn't affect how I date. You you know, I totally didn't have to go into therapy or on an antidepressant after being told to hang myself by a shower curtain. Because the thing is, yes. I was 17, which is like, it's such a stable age right, for, right. for teen girls that, right. you know, being completely ripped apart by like all these 30, 40, 50 year old journalists had no bearing on my life. But, you know, it, in all seriousness, I'm super proud of that story. First of all, I think it's it's like tight and funny. Um, and now I think in hindsight, we know that the college admissions process isn't just a sham. It's actually rigged. Um, but besides from all that, I think, you know, the best part of this whole thing was that I had already sort of soiled my name by the time I became a <laughs> professional. Like there was nothing anyone could say to me or pin on me. And there wasn't anything I was afraid to write. I could write what I really think. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's my cohort specifically that like I sort of think of as like the Coney 2012 generation but I can't tell you how many yeah, yeah. I can't tell we're cusp we're, we're Gen Z cusp I can't tell you how many people I know who like agonize over an Instagram story or like back then it was Facebook posts but it's really anything tweets and they and they like they first of all they like they think they're the president which they're not it's like first of all no one cares and secondly it's like I think it's corrosive to be on the defensive all the time. It's also not conducive to writing things that break through or writing things that are original or following your career. Or honest. Or honest. Or, come on, <laughs> you know, the to all the colleges that rejected me, got us Park Slope Panthers. Because I was <laughs> like, these people are crazy. And now you're on Blocked and Reported. Yeah, look at me now. <laughs> look, I, I want to I wanna again bring it back to the guy who ghosted me. Yes. Okay? Uh, but no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I honestly, I think it should be part like of puberty that you get canceled. Yeah. I think you should go to prom. And then you should get canceled because everyone and I think we know this from, you know, every time we hang out, you know, our our, our wrong thinkers club, um, we're just having more fun. Yeah. And 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 that funny that story, which is about how, like, tightly I'd wound myself up to, like, get into Princeton or whatever, completely unwound me for the rest of my life. 
Um, I ended up going to Michigan, which is just a depot for people who didn't get into Penn. And Jesse also went there. So go blue. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right about that. This is one of the things about the post-cancellation life. I, I think there are several good things about it. For one, like I find myself becoming a much better journalist at post-cancellation, mm-hmm. also a better person, a much more empathetic person. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a freedom. There's a real freedom in it. And of course, you and I, I'm, I'm going to do a privilege disclaimer. We're in the, the privileged position of not working for institutions where we have to censor ourselves, which not everybody gets that opportunity. But yeah, I find a real freedom. It's like post-cancellation is a state of not giving a fuck or it can be a state of not giving a fuck if you're lucky. I completely agree. I'm I'm proud to be here. <laughs> We're proud to have you. Okay, Susie, if you don't mind, I want to get a little personal with you. Uh, you're the only person under the age of 60 I know, including Jesse. So I have some questions for you about youth culture. Feel free to decline to answer this, but you're in your 20s. You live in New York. We prefer youthy culture. Youthy. We live on the Red Sea. We're youthies. <laughs> Are there pirates? Uh, I'm, yeah, Park Slope pirates. I'm, I'm just curious about what dating is like for someone like you. And by that, I mean you work for the free press, you're Barry Weiss's little sister. And I imagine that this could inspire some passionate responses <laughs> on the the apps or in real life. Like I was already off the market by the time I became a publicly, you know, scare quotes problematic person around like 2017. But I can't imagine trying to meet people or go on dates in that environment. I mean, I live in Seattle, so it's probably worse than New York for that. But I feel like if I were on Tinder or Hinge, my profile pic would be screenshotted and posted on TikTok like I was a Richard Spencer trying to meet women. So has this been an issue for you, is, or is New York just too big for this to be a problem? It's, it's honestly not a problem because I'm pretty. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not a problem because I'm hot. Yeah. Um, no, it has come up a little bit. I was once on this date um, with this guy who was like, just so you know, I Googled you, mm-hmm. but I still came on the date. So you're brave. welcome. And, I, and then he ghosted and, uh, you. Brave. No, he didn't ghost me. He actually wanted to go on a second date. But like, obviously, I should have immediately left. But instead, I got super paranoid. And I would like this deep theater kid part of me kicked in where I was like, I will win this person over. Uh-huh. Like, he has no idea what's about to happen. And I, like... Perfor- Did you start, like, like reciting Ibram Kennedy <laughs> poetry? No, I was just... I was like, oh, my God. What did we even talk about? I didn't recite Ibram Kendi. He mostly talked. He was extremely proud that he had the Killer Mike credit card. He's like, <laughs> Killer Mike started a bank during, really? during BLM. And he had, like, the debit card. And I was like, cool. And... Um, yeah, he was, yeah, he was an odd one, but overall I've, I go on dates with a lot of, I mean, like it's Brooklyn far left guys, like Bernie bros, soy boys, occasionally like a real son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I haven't gotten scorned. I think it would be more embarrassing and potentially damaging for a man to take out a girl and like what, give them the James O'Keefe treatment over my Leah Thomas reporting? I mean, that's you, really like... Right. There's not much to there's not much to hide there. You already did the reporting. Yeah, exactly. It's like I put my name on it. What am I going to say in private that like right, I, right, I wasn't willing right. to say? But, I, you know, I will say I'm, I'm off the apps now. I deleted uh, them all. And I'm seeing someone that Barry picked out for me because it's, it's just easier <laughs> this way. Yeah. Your boss, your matchmaker, your sister. My sister boss wife. Yeah. Um, I also assume that polyamory is huge for the youths, or at least the youths who are not afraid to leave their apartments and actually meet people. Is that your experience? Or is it like, or the poly people like 50 and bored? I don't know. I mean, polyamory keeps coming up. I feel like this is just a thing that like gay men have been doing forever that straight girls are ruining. 
Like, yes, absolutely. Scray girls are colonizing polyamory. Exactly. And, and, like, and gay men didn't call it polyamory. They just called it life. They just called it being gay men. <laughs> but like, yeah. they were able Going to the park. Exactly. They but somehow gay men are able to be poly non monog and not write think pieces about it. It's because they're so men. Like, isn't that all we really want? <laughs> like, not to sound like so boomer, but like, I actually think like, let's keep this one behind closed doors, y'all. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. You don't have to be ashamed about it, but uh, you don't also don't have to throw it in your faces. Is that is that what people said about gay people? It's true in this case. Yeah, it is true. I do think it's like everyone is like so breathlessly um, talking about the few poly people they know. It's like how everyone in Brooklyn supposedly like drinks $18 lattes and has a child named Chestnut. Like, <laughs> eh, like there's some kernel of truth to it. But like I, I think people would be disappointed to come to Brooklyn and, and see that um, <laughs> we're not like animals humping each other in the street. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a really kind of sad piece in the New York Times yesterday about being solo poly and how that's not like being single yeah. it's very different it's dating and it's like it's dating it's just dating yeah. it's like it's dating but like making sure people know you're not an asshole it's like when people say they're flexitarian it's like so you've thought about being a vegetarian like what are we talking about well it's also like attaching a label to a thing somehow makes it more special yeah i'm not just a normal person dating i'm poly i'm solo poly exactly or i'm an asexual who fucks or whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that's like really one of my best holes to go down is asexuals who have sex. Um, and then check out Astad on Instagram. I will DM you a link after this. This is the, everybody check out Astad on Instagram. It's so good. But I guess I there was a good piece in the Atlantic about um, polyamory being like a new fad for wealthy people. And it was yeah. I mean, it was a good piece. It was a little bit watered down version of Rob Henderson's theories about luxury beliefs, things that confer mm -hmm. status on the upper class and sort of take away from the lower classes, like, you know, defunding the police, um, not getting married at all. Um, but I did think that Atlantic had a good point about, he called it therapeutic libertarianism. So this idea that on one, it's like the worst, ver like the worst things of both the left and the right. So on one hand, you're being super um, self-oriented, uh, Nothing can get in the way of your self-fulfillment. But on the other kind of far right hand, you're kind of outsourcing this thing. You're optimizing your way out of like any boredom or monotony you might feel. My thing is like, I think we need to bring back shame and guilt. I think those are really useful, good <laughs> forces. And like, you're going to make a, an excellent Jewish mother someday. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, that's all I want. But I, I, I th I'm like enough with the polyamory. Bring back cheating. Bring back mistresses, lying, burner phones, motel rooms. It's retro. It's retro. Well, you know, the 90s are back, so I feel like cheating should be back any moment now. I completely agree. And it's like, I don't, there are, there's no such thing as a victimless crime, okay? If you're married and you're having sex, you're, it's a crime <laughs> and you, someone has to get hurt, okay? I want some more hurt feelings. Well, it's better for drama. This, I read the uh, the Atlantic piece you were talking about as well. It's by um, a really interesting writer. His name's Tyler Austin Harper. Yeah, it's great. And I, hadn't, I didn't read the book that the book, what was it called? Um, 
what's the big polyamory book called? More. 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 I didn't, I haven't read the book, but it got pretty glowing reviews in the press. And Tyler Austin Harper, he did read the book and he writes in this piece, we'll put a link in the piece of the show notes, that this woman who, you know, is writing about her open marriage. Miserable. She seems miserable. And it seems as though her husband has coerced her into this because he wants to fuck around. Oh, completely. And then she's saddled with like, having to date and take care of the kids. I mean... Right. And her husband. Yeah. But Katie, I have a I have a question for you. I think anyone who's in a polyamorous marriage is just in a pre-divorce phase if you're great. But, <laughs> Unless they're gay men. Gay men can do it. Well, that's my question. Your former boss, King, King of Kings, Dan Savage... Did he do this? Yeah. Did he plant the seeds we're seeing yes. flowering in terms of mainstream acceptance of like kink and also polyamory. What do you think? Yes, this is Dan's fault. Dan is, <laughs> this not, is Dan's fault. It's not only Dan's fault, but it is in large part Dan's But it's fault. mostly his fault. I mean, the yeah. ethical slut came out in, I think, the late 80s. So there, Dan is, cannot be, is not solo to blame for this. He's in a polycule of people to blame for <laughs> this. But yes, I think Dan has had a huge influence on the culture. Uh, his, his influence is probably invisible to people who have never heard his name before. Mm. But yeah, I think that Dan is a huge part of this because he's been championing polyamory, non-monogamy, monogamishamy, whatever he calls it. His new term is polyamory, which is, I believe, like, that's what you want. It's like somebody who tolerates their partner cheating, like a Hillary Bill Clinton situation. Right. Uh, Dan popularized the term the unicorn, which anybody who's been on a dating app has come across profiles of people looking for unicorns. That's a couple looking for a third, usually a woman. Actually, not usually a woman, always a woman. There's never <laughs> never two women or never a man and a woman who are looking for a man. It's always a woman. Yeah, no, this is Dan's fault. I think we need we need to put him on trial. Yeah. I'll put his I'll put his phone number in the show notes. You guys can text him how you feel about this. I mean, my problems with with polyamory are just they're practical. Like I don't have any any moral issues with polyamory. If people want to fuck other people and they're whatever, it's fine. It's not my business. I'm libertarian when it comes to these sort of things. But I don't want it in my life because I don't like to talk about feelings. Right. I am the rare lesbian who hates <laughs> processing. And from my experience of uh, like the brief period where I tried to be polyamorous and also just having lots and lots of friends who were in that scene, it's 90% talking about fucking other people. Right. No, no, sorry. It's 99% f- talking about fucking other people and 1% actually doing it. And I am just not interested in processing. <laughs> okay, Susie, thank you for being my youth correspondent. Um, now that the personal is over, let's get professional for a moment. So mutual friend Andy Mills was on the show last week, and he said something that I thought was really interesting. Andy and I didn't have much time to discuss it on that episode, but I'm going to ask all of our guest hosts about it while Jesse's gone. Andy was basically like, you can't overstate the impact that Twitter has had on the media in terms of like the social pressures within organizations to comply with this very narrow idea about what is right, what is wrong politically, socially, et cetera. And he said that since Elon Musk broke Twitter, that is just gone. <laughs> and Twitter no longer has the power to cancel people, at least within the media. And I think he might be right about that. I mean, when was the last time a columnist got fired for wearing a cholo costume to a Halloween party in 1993? I just, I think cal- cancel culture still exists. I think it's shifted some more about Israel, Palestine. I think it's actually ascendant on the right. But mm. what do you think about this? Did Elon breaking Twitter end the media's reign of terror? I, I mean, I just saw a tweet this morning that Jeffrey Tubin's back on CNN. I saw that. Um, amazing. And 
Uh, Rogan got like a two hundred fifty million dollar deal from Spotify. Mm-hmm. Another one. Yeah. I I don't. Even, I think wasn't the first one like a hundred. I mean, whatever. It's some disgusting amount of money. But either twenty five something. Like yeah. That. I mean, you're not seeing. And maybe this is because the the economy is is shifting and media jobs are harder to come by. You don't see the you know the Spotify junior engineer kind of throwing a hissy fit over that because they've Rogan, all been fired. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I. I I'm kind of of two minds. I do think it was only ever a small sliver of people that mm-hmm. Twitter could have taken down their jobs. It was an important group of people for sure. Um, but like, for example, I worked at the New York Post and we kept our dirty laundry inside the building. But I think for people at big name papers who, by the way, often come from big name schools, often big name high schools, maybe even big name families. Twitter was the cafeteria, and for some reason, things said there carried a lot of weight with the higher-ups. Um, you know, you, we, you talk about this a lot, and I think it's true that it was often, like, the junior people who would enforce this. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think Twitter cancels people. I think people cancel people. Mm-hmm. And we just need to do universal background checks on those people <laughs> to make sure they don't get their hands on Twitter. Um you know, has cancel culture shifted? Maybe there's an argument that it's just one and we're moving to the next stage of it where there's kind of wrong thinking people have been hounded out of the mainstream. And there's like a few like token right people, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard, Ross Douthat at The Times, and everyone else is kind of building our own institutions. I mean, look at us. Look at us. Who would have thought? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think what we saw in the media over the past four years we're kind of seeing happen in museums, in higher education, even sports leagues. You know, I, I hate to borrow from uh, Barry's resignation letter, but but she wrote that Twitter isn't on the masthead of The New York Times, but Twitter has become its mm-hmm. ultimate editor. I think that was true. And I think the fact that we're seeing layoffs at, you name it, L.A. Times, Sports Illustrated, BuzzFeed News, Time, Washington Post. I don't think those things are unrelated from that, from what she said. Um I I didn't think it was a good idea for big time magazines to let the patients run the asylum. But I mean, un- unfortunately, I think we're they're, you know, sowing what they reaped. Does that make sense? It does. I'm I'm not sure I totally agree. Playboy, for instance, I don't think Playboy is uh, is going under because they put a fat model on the cover. I think they're going under because porn exists on the internet. Right. And nobody needs to get there, get the swimsuit issue. And sports coverage exists on the internet. I, I just think the mechanics are much more um, complex and much more systemic than, you know, go woke, go broke. Although I do like that that rhymes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think go woke, go broke is is oversimplifying simplifying it. Yeah. But to, to your point of like the mechanics of it, I, I do think it also has to do with who's in the building and how much they're getting paid and who can afford to have an unpaid internship and what those people talk about. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. And like, by no means am I happy when when journalists lose their jobs. But I think the decline it depends on the journalist. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, it does depend on the well, journalist. I mean, here's an example. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I opened Threads, which I don't usually do, but this is the uh, the the Twitter clone that 
meta attached to Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I saw people complaining that your sister Barry is was listed on the roster for the next season of TED Talks. Oh, yeah. And people on threads were pissed about it. And I did not see a fucking stir about this on Twitter. I think the Daily Beast maybe covered it, but this just did not make a story. And it, was, it wasn't just Barry. Um, my, what's his name? Ackerman, the guy who's been freaking out about plagiarism. Bill Ackman. Bill, Bill Ackman, Ackman. Bill Ackman. He was also named. So a couple of problematic people. And I think if, if we go back a few years, like they never, Ted never would have selected them. And if we go back a year, Barry being named as a Ted, I don't know if it's a fellow or whatever, speaking at Ted would have caused this huge storm. And it just, it like died really quickly. It just, I, I just don't think the, the impact is there. And I think a large part of this is because Twitter has really changed as a direct result of Elon buying it. I think it's shifted. Like, I think these people, the woke scolds still exist. They're just not on Twitter. They're on threads. They're on Blue Sky. They're on Mastodon. And having it fractured like this, it means that none, that no one of these sites is able to create such a, a media shitstorm that these institutions actually have to pay attention to it. I, I think that's a fair point. I, I think with the TED thing, like six of their TED fellows resigned. Right. Um, I stand with them in solidarity. <laughs> I think it was the right move. Totally. Okay. I, I also am like trying to get Barry to go up there and do like like a fif 15 minutes on like REM cycles and sleep, like some like deep <laughs> totally, cut yes. TED. It, yeah. It's like, what does the colander say about <laughs> marriage? Like, just something idea. like totally unrelated. She should do something on parenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she should. What my Mom baby taught me about death. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really excited for that. I hope I hope I have the chance to go. But you know, I I, I think you're right. I think Elon buying Twitter scattered it. I think people. I mean, succeeding in hounding a lot of big people out of these institutions that they wanted right. to keep, you know, precious temples also worked. So I, I'd argue that wokeness in media always sort of meant something different than wokeness in the larger world uh, or different than wokeness in education, wokeness in medicine, wokeness in the arts. Media is so fickle and self-conscious. Mm -hmm. I basically think it's a funhouse mirror and I try not to read the tea leaves in it. Um I left the mainstream media. Uh, I mean, I think New York Post would be mainstream. But in terms of like the, the big idea, right, that there are and I'm simplifying this, obviously, there are oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressed look a certain way. The oppressors look another way. And everything is either building up to liberating the oppressor or, or liberating the oppressed, excuse me, or um, supporting the oppressor. I think that idea is still very much in vogue, uh, even if it's illegal to like read about drag queens in Florida or whatever. Yeah, a lot of this has been institutionalized in ways that uh, will be very hard to dismantle, which is actually happening in, in some red states. They are doing away with uh, with the DEI administrative apparatus. In very clunkily. Yes, very, very, very clunkily. I mean, I think something like the SAT coming back is ultimately a net positive. Yeah. I think... Um, uh, what what is it? Uh, DeSantis is like threatening to outlaw Beyond Meat. I I actually don't think that's good for the cause. It's no, <laughs> it's not. It's not Beyond Meat. It's lab grown meat. Yeah, that's one of these things that, <laughs> like, everything cannot become a culture war issue. I mean, I guess everything can become a culture war issue, but things like this. I mean, it's just so frustrating because it's like lab grown meat is a way of ending the suffering of 
billions of of creatures, billions of sentient creatures that feel physical pain that aren't that much different than uh, than like than my fucking dog. Here we go, <laughs> animal rights activist Katie Look. Herzog. Please welcome to the stage. Welcome to my TED talk. Pitbull apologist. <laughs> yeah. Fucking DeSantis, let us have our lab grown meat. I'm looking forward to it. Do you remember when you cried on the podcast uh, about, about dogs? About dog yes, dog. I do. I will never forget that. And you know what? I cut out. I was actually like sobbing. Sobbing. I cut out so much of it. I only left in like the brief. I like could not talk. I was sobbing so hard about the dog. I mean, I'm a little bit more. I'm against lab grown meat, but let's let's save that discussion for when we're in person. Oh, okay. We're gonna have to fight about that. We can fight about that and whether or not Barbie is a good movie. Perfect. I look forward to it. Okay, let's move on to Portland. But before we get to that, let's do housekeeping and for our free subscribers, an ad. Jesse, true or false? You own a dating service in Brooklyn called Single Singles. Before I answer that, I want to note that you wrote this script. <laughs> yes. Looking for a mate who truly tingles? Join Single Singles, where love mingles. You might want to work on that, but imagine that customers are rushing to your retail dating service. Obviously, that Wait, would never happen. Wait, hold on. Hold on. I'm imagining it. Okay, I'm imagining it. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly. No, keep it effortlessly. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. <laughs> Just keep that. You have to keep that. People like our ads because you don't know how to talk. Source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Did you say Shopify? Shopify, our new knife company. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash barpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash barpod to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify dot com slash barpod check out my dating service okay uh let's do some housekeeping um so we are a podcast you can reach us at blocked and reported at, po- at the, what is it blocked and reported at <laughs> blocked and report i need jesse i need my jesse yes blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com please send us tips feedback uh, photos of your puppies and the best way to support the show is to check us out on Substack if you go to blockedandreported.org and join us for just $5 a month. You get three extra episodes of this podcast every month, as well as an array of other goodies. And you also get access to our personal ads. That's right. Blocked and Reported is bringing back the personal ads for the month of February. If you are looking to add another body to the polycule, now is the time. Check that out, blockedandreported.org for instructions. What else? We also have merch. Please don't buy our merch. Our merch is the merch store is a mess. No. I think I think it's dead now. I'm doing merch for the free press. Why is this like I saw it. It looks good. I, I honestly this has felled so many of us at the free press to try and get like a half good t-shirt out there. Mm-hmm. The merch world is trying to like, you know, break into the royal palace in Saudi Arabia. Like, why is it so difficult to get like a nice hat on a website? I think it's the Houthis. I think it's the Houthis. It is the freaking Houthis. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, don't buy our merch. Go buy. Yeah, go buy Susie's <laughs> merch, not ours. I think that's it. Please check us out. Blocktoreported.org. Okay, Susie, our main story today takes place in Portland, Oregon, a beautiful, walkable city with great food, good art, and the most insufferable people 
in the nation. Susie, have you been to Portland? I've not been to Portland. I mean, I feel like whenever Portland comes up, it's like ballot reform passes that would require residents to house youth fentanyl addicts on their lawn. Like the things <laughs> that are coming out of Portland, I'm like, wait, what? I mean, our, our mutual friend Nancy Rommelman is from Portland. Mm-hmm. And when I met her, I remember her telling me like these kids ruined my husband's livelihood and coffee coffee company because I talked about Me Too on YouTube. I I know the person who did that. I have known the person who, who took Nancy's husband's coffee company down for like 20 years. She's now a life coach. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, wow. We, that's, a, that's a good subject. But anyway, I haven't yeah, been to Portland. Yeah. I'm afraid to. I think I would need like facial reconstruction surgery before I went to Portland. But you actually kind of look like everybody who lives in Portland. So <laughs> you could probably blend in pretty quickly. So the thing about Portland to know is that it is both a very liberal city and a very Caucasian city. So those two factors combined make it a petri dish for white guilt. And this is probably, I think, especially true because Oregon's very founding was, in fact, racist in nature. So according to Oregon Public Broadcasting, quote, in 1844, when Oregon was still a territory, it passed its first black exclusionary law. It banned slavery, but it also prohibited black people from living in the territory for more than three years. If a black person broke this law, the consequence was 39 lashes every six months until they left. They needed some Robin D'Angelo to come in and and teach them anti-racism. Seriously. I mean. (laughs) Okay, so the state has a racist founding. And then today, Portland, Oregon holds the not so proud title of whitest major city in America. And this combined with the overwhelmingly progressive population means it's it really is just ripe ground for anyone who wants to take advantage of well-meaning whites who are terrified of being seen as racist. So if Robin D'Angelo ever wanted to establish an institute for the study of white tears or if Syra Rao ever wanted to actually win an election, Portland is the place to do it. She could do race to dinner, race to dessert. I mean, she would have <laughs> race to the brunch. whole day. Race to, yeah, yeah, exactly. Race to, br- race to after school snack. Right. <laughs> Susie, please remind people what happened in Portland during the racial reckoning in 2020. Portland was a tinderbox. The city has a really long history of left-wing political organizing, anti-racist action, uh, had its first national conference in Portland in the 90s, Rose City Antifa was founded there in 2007. There's also a lot of possibly related right-wing and white nationalist organizing that happens out there, and, and they sort of feed off each other. Maybe it has to do with, like, the Pacific Northwest hardcore punk scene or the extremely racist roots of the state, of the city that you just um, explained to us. But regardless, Portland is sort of the front line of the culture war. And by summer 2020, when it felt like every city was combusting, that was especially true of Portland. Um, Back then, uh, summer 2020, there was 100 straight days of protesting, and and it was pretty hardcore. These were professional activists, uh, professional protesters, uh, Portland tried to organize something sort of similar to Chop Chaz, like kind of like an autonomous zone in the city. It never really came together, but it almost felt like the whole of downtown was a little bit of uh, an autonomous zone or at least a place where you could tussle with the with the police. Um, this is from a New York Times article on day 50 of the protests. Uh, some have thrown cans and bottles, shot fireworks or pointed lasers at officers. Uh, one was recently accused of hitting a federal officer with a hammer. Uh, on Saturday, protesters set fire to the police union headquarters. I mean, there was looting clashes with police. And then in July, Trump sent in federal agents 
to stop attacks on U.S. property, which enraged the local leaders, the mayors, the city council. They they didn't want Trump's help. But at the same time, this became kind of a centerpiece in Trump's sort of restoring law and order uh, part of his presidency. Um he sent in a lot of federal agents, which apparently they weren't properly identified. They were in Ardenmark vans. They had riot gear, but, you know, no badges. So I think that kind of led itself to this feeling of chaos that was going on. People thought the, the rumors around social media at that time, I mean, people were saying that that protesters had been kidnapped. Right. And this l- led to a real sense of panic. And I think in the the this all sort of peaked around September when a self-described anti-fascist and, you know, there was a lot of drama around that time. Who is Antifa? Who's pretending to be Antifa? Um, but someone who who claims to have been part of Antifa shot and killed a 39-year-old named Aaron Danielson, who's a right-wing Trump reporter who had driven into town in a caravan uh, waving Trump flags. Um, around this time, you also had the mayor who had declared a state of emergency, had to leave his house because protesters kept breaking windows and setting fire to the building. There was con- there was a mom's protest. Protesters would go to the commercial district and use the picnic tables and the wooden dividers for outdoor eating, turn that into fuel for bonfires. Uh, there was fire at the, the Law and Justice Center. I mean, it was it, it really the city was kind of ablaze and it was kind of, um, I think, the epicenter of what could be called the, the most hardcore um, edges of the BLM protesters and also the counter protesters. Absolutely. So all this is to say that Portland in 2020 was truly incendiary. And not only were all these protests and the civic upheaval and political upheaval, this went all the way into the fall. That summer, late summer, the Pacific Northwest had just an epic, horrible wildfire season. So the air was just filled with this orange smoke for weeks. And the best way to describe Portland at that time is just apocalyptic. Seattle was similar, but not not quite as extreme as Portland. Okay, so before we get to the story, a little geography lesson for you. So Portland is divided into six quadrants, and I realize that makes no sense, but little about Portland does. Those quadrants are on the west side of the city. So you have northwest, southwest, and south Portland. And then across the Willamette River, you have southeast, northeast, and north, north Portland. And that's where our story takes place today. Parts of northeast and north Portland have historically been predominantly black neighborhoods, and that was by design. So the specific street where our story takes place today is North Mississippi Avenue. And in the 1920s, people, black people were allowed to live in Portland only if they worked for the railroad. And because this area around North Mississippi Avenue was walking distance from the rail station, the city said, okay, blacks can live there, but nowhere else. A hundred years later, it's no longer predominantly black. I lived in that area in the early 2000s. And it was rapidly gentrifying and getting much whiter back then. And thanks to you, thanks to me. What were you doing there? I am. A, I am a gentrifier, uh, working at coffee shops and drinking mostly. <laughs> My girlfriend at the time was in law school in Portland, so we moved there. But then um, she broke up with me and kicked me out of the house, and I moved back to North Carolina. Long story. <laughs> um, <laughs> you were the baristas. Um, I so you, you had the pin salad on your on your uh, apron. Yes. Calls coming from inside the house. If I had stayed in Portland, I would have been um, one of the people burning down the Justice Center. <laughs> so I lived there in the early 2000s. By this point, the gentrification has largely been complete. So in 1970, the percentage of Black residents in inner North Portland was between 50 and 84 percent, depending on the street. And while this was once one of the more affordable parts in Portland, like when I lived there, you moved to North Portland to save money. 
Today, the median sale price on Mississippi Avenue in North Portland, so that's the main commercial and residential street, is currently $562,000. And there are lots of shiny new condos and bike shops that also sell lattes and record players or whatever they do. And it is in this environment that our story today takes place. So in late summer 2020, during this period of mass riots and protests, as well as COVID-19 and wildfires all over the Northwest, a story started brewing in North Portland. And the story was that a Black-slash-Indigenous family, the Kinneys, had been unfairly evicted from the home that they'd had for four generations. The house is known as the Red House on Mississippi, and it's this old, rambling Victorian that has certainly seen better days and is now next door to luxury condo buildings. I'm going to read you a bit from a GoFundMe set up to support them. This was also posted on a a webpage uh, that they set up. On the morning of September 9th, 2020, Multnomah County sheriffs bashed open the Kinney family door at gunpoint. Armed with assault rifles, they barked our orders for the family to pack up their belongings and move within 30 minutes. The Kinneys were given no prior legal notice as their case was still in litigation in higher court. Dot, dot, dot. We refused to let another eviction happen. Outraged at the treatment of this Afro-Indigenous family, the Portland community has united to save the Red House on Mississippi, rallying support around the family to reclaim the house and hold the land in a 24-7 eviction blockade. Since September, support has grown for the Red House, and today we maintain an around-the-block community presence along with on-site camping, a fully functioning kitchen offering two hot meals a day, and free programming centered in healing and abolition. This is what it looks like for neighbors to truly take care of each other. Wow. Sounds like they, like, set up a JCC on their stoop. I mean, it sounds great. <laughs> I don't know if Jews are welcome. <laughs> so this occupation begins, and the plan is to stay there at the property until the family gets their house back. Uh, so the family and supporters, they started this full press media campaign. They sent out press releases and held press conferences, and they had Twitter and Instagram accounts. And the story they told was that this family, the Kinney family, was cruelly targeted for eviction in the middle of a global pandemic during an eviction moratorium. I I also think, you know, given the history we just sort of discussed of Portland and how it is mostly white people, I mean, to find a family going through this who hit every letter of the BIPOC acronym. Yeah. It's that's what that was. It was was like, come on. Are you kidding? Like, this is perfect. Um, How long how long had the Kinneys lived in this house? A long time. So William Kinney Sr. and his wife, Pauline, they bought the house in 1955 after moving to Portland from Arkansas. And they say they were unable to get loans due to racist banking policies at the time. So they bought the house in cash and they owned it outright. And they lived there for years. They raised a family there. And then in 1995, William and Pauline sold the house to their son, William Kinney Jr. He and his wife, Julie Metcalf. So she's she's native. She's a member of the Upper Skagit tribe. That's the indigenous part of Afro-Indigenous. They then raised their family there, including a son named William Kinney III, and he is the central character in our story. And why did they say they were being evicted, given they bought this house in the 50s? Okay, we'll let the family spokesman tell his version of what happened. This is William Kinney III. He goes by the name William Nietzsche, not Nietzsche, Nietzsche. This is him from a short documentary posted on YouTube. I'm William X. Nietzsche, watching Citizen2Music.com. So we're going to go into a few facts and specifics about why this has occurred uh, to clear it up for the viewers. This case is about an unlawful foreclosure that took place right here in Multnomah County, Portland, Oregon. This fraudulent bump subprime loan originated in 2004 that preyed upon an elderly couple. 
uh, who happened to be my mother and father, William and Julie Kenny. HSBC Bank, one of the world's largest British banks, was here in America operating, preying upon the American people with predatory home loans. Uh, these loans were then eventually passed around like hot potatoes. As you know, HSBC Bank was kicked out of the USA for mortgage-backed securities fraud. So in 2016, we discovered unlawful transfer of the mortgage note. I had a, a securitization audit report conducted by CFLA who then revealed numerous fraudulent assignments wherein it ended up with U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank uh, got a hold of this fraudulent bump subprime loan. They held a non-judicial foreclosure auction right here in Multnomah County Court on the front steps. Me and my mother showed up at this particular auction to stop it, in which we did successfully. We put everybody on notice that we had a interest in the property. Our trust uh, claimed the property. Uh, William and Julie Kenny no longer owned the property. It was held by trust, and so we went into litigation and arbitration. We then went to the federal district courthouse and filed a verified federal complaint. Uh, I filed over 60 motions at least. And our purported judge, Michael Simon, who is now a criminal in this case, he made a, a critical decision ruling that mortgage electronic registration system, also known as MERS, was a mere Stravener's heir. He equated... All right, that's probably enough. Um... Uh, uh, well, it's one of those videos where the person talking is is seems so sure that you kind of also become sure. And he and, must know what he's talking about. Yeah. And, and then he's like, well, in 2007. And then you realize, wait, why is there spooky music playing? Why is there like <laughs> clip art of uh, uh, a gavel? And then why is there uh, like weird like puppet? I mean, some, I see these like more and more actually these kind of like flyers about people who really control the world uh and it's mm -hmm. like ceo of disney jew ceo of cnn jew right. and it's like oh no i know where we're going and so you realize you kind of go from being like oh this this person has a lot of information to like oh no this is this is a crazy person um i i i, I watched the video in full last night and he said he said this amazing line he was like um we did something in international law called forum pro prorogatum when you seize the court for international violations and so and his friend seized the bench under the moroccan treaty of peace and friendship of 1986 mm -hmm. and then he was like and this was the day before my birthday and you're like <laughs> right 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 like because because of course that factors yes. in um can you i've i've literally have no idea what i just watched if you want to explain it yeah okay it gets complicated very quickly so to some and we will get into some of his interesting legal theories later but to just simplify his version of the story william nietzsche's version of the story is that the family are victims of predatory lending and a fraudulent loan scheme they get evicted thus begins the occupation a neighbor who lives who lives right there described the scene to us this way Pretty rapidly, spray-painted signs went up with all sorts of slogans from Black Lives Matter all the way to stuff about genocide. The windows got boarded up, and the vacant lot next to the house, as well as a little public seating area, started filling up with people setting up tents and patrols to keep watch and guard the house and its occupants. Every day, more people joined the group, handing out leaflets, yelling about displacement, theft of land, racist Portland, and a corrupt racist police force. And at first... The media basically repeated the family's story verbatim while this occupation was happening. So here's an example from the Portland Observer. Uh, this article has been taken offline. I'm not sure why, but we got an archive of it. It was called Lost by Fraud and Deceit, 
It was published in November 2020, and it begins. An African-American family with indigenous roots is locked in a dramatic struggle for the right to return to their historic home in one of Portland's most gentrified neighborhoods, a battle blamed on a sophisticated mortgage scam, an alleged fraud and deceit case that has captured the hearts and minds of a growing community of allies pursuing racial, racial and economic justice. This was also covered in the New York Times, The Guardian, and of course, all of the local outlets. And the family was on board with this, or at least William Nietzsche was. He really took the helm as the family spokesperson, and and the site became somewhat of a gathering place while this occupation continues. So they advertised events like Sunday self-care with free massages for BIPOCs. There was pumpkin carving, crafts, screen printing, collaging. Uh, Our neighborhood correspondent says, quote, In the early days, it had kind of a Hare Krishna vibe when you could still walk down the street, and we'll get to why you after a while couldn't walk down the street in a moment (laughs) they would pass out flyers and try to recruit anyone and everyone to join the cause donate food for the cause lots of free stuff for BIPOCs to emphasize solidarity against gentrification doing lots there's a few there's a few brownstones in Brooklyn that people that a similar thing has happened where there's yeah there's like a either people refuse to pay their rent because the landlords aren't doing repairs or there's Uh um, you know they're just kind of a rent strike and then all of a sudden you have all these people who look like then they were in like my freshman lit class, like sitting, <laughs> drinking orange juice all day because for some reason you can't leave. It You just have to like have a 24-7 guard around the house. I don't know how uh, a masseuse would guard against someone trying to repossess <laughs> your home, but I guess I guess there's there's must be uh, they must have a knife or something under the table. Using Reiki to keep out the bad <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the, the neighbor who was observing this, she says that it was also a very druggy place, not a very particularly friendly place. And so while organizers tried to involve the neighbors and gain their support, it quickly became a homeless encampment, which is entirely predictable. This is exactly what happened with Chop Chaz, the occupied protests in Seattle in summer 2020. Like it started out as this revolution, but very quickly was filled up with tents and people doing drugs in the park. It was a community of self-care. Right. <laughs> so they maintained this for a few weeks with people just sort of on the property and a little bit onto the neighbor neighboring properties occupying this, this home. And then on December 8th, 2020, things went south when local law enforcement showed up to clear the property. So they arrested six protesters, and this did not go over well. The crowd fought back. They threw rocks and balloons filled with paint. It's a very Portland tactic. No milkshakes? I thought that was your guy's thing. No milkshakes. Yes. (laughs) uh, The cops actually retreated, and one drove into a parked vehicle on his way out. Embarrassing. Uh, Then the protesters barricaded the whole area, overturned dumpsters, blocked traffic, and then guards, some of them armed with either real guns or paintball gar- guns, were stationed by the in- intersections to prevent cops or right-wing agitators from breaking in. Okay, so they sort of expanded the the JCC on Mississippi. <laughs> yes, it's growing. The movement is growing. This is a quote from the Willamette Week. Since the blockade began, occupiers have been visited nightly by vehicles with hostile occupants. The incidents range from insults to drive-by hurling of fireworks and other incendiary devices. The harassers don't leave their cars, but activists assume they are right-wing counter-protesters or chuds. The wee hours of the morning are nicknamed Chud O'Clock. It's Chud O'Clock somewhere. <laughs> it, it, it always is. It it's always Chud is. O'Clock somewhere, Katie. Let's pop open a cold one. <laughs> yeah, your Bud Light. I guess not a Bud Light anymore. <laughs> not a Bud Light. <laughs> Here's another quote from the article. 
It requires several physical barricades of protection and layers of guards in the middle of an occupied campground that is itself under constant threat of raid by local law enforcement to make people feel <laughs> to make people of color feel safe standing around a fire pit. So sad. Yeah. So I imagine the handful of black people and the Asians standing like they're like the black people are in the middle, like right by the fire pit, getting the warmth. And then the Asians are behind them or maybe the Hispanics behind them, then the Asians, then the whites behind. Yeah. Them. I mean, I guess it's fa- I mean, I've never felt unsafe around a fire pit, so I can't really comment on this. I don't know how many layers of protection it would take for others to roast a marshy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so mean. And the coverage of this from sympathetic outlets, it very much reminded me of the coverage from Chop Chaz in Seattle. Like, it's all about the food pantries and the dance parties and the community coming together and the threats from the outside, the threats from the right and the threats from cops. And it's not about the fights or the gunshots or, in the case of Chop Chaz, the literal rapes and murders. I'm not willing to to mete out any judgment on Chop Chaz culture. <laughs> um, I'm not from there. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think there was it was like really a potential. Village, and I think this is when a lot of people had their turn, as it were. That was when there were we had mostly peaceful protests on the cry on CNN as like a right. city burned right. uh, behind the newscaster. I mean, do you remember the piece that your sister in law Nellie Bowles wrote about? She went to Seattle and she went to a coffee shop that I used to go to all the time because my office, the stranger's office, was actually in Chop Chop Chaz. Amazing. And so I used to go to I used to go to this coffee shop all the time. Coffee shop owned by a queer person of color. And who was losing business. And Nellie went and interviewed this guy and the response on Twitter. And I think from within the New York Times, you would have thought that she had called Richard Spencer dapper. <laughs> oh, my God. I do remember that story. Wow. What a what an amazing time. It, it was not appropriate to to kind of interview the business owners. I think I think Portland actually uh, a judgment just came down. They have to pay like three million dollars, some some amount to to business owners who who sued the city um, from lost damages during well, the, this time. The city's going to pay it or are they going <laughs> to make the anarchists pay it? They're going to raid the anarchist parents. Big oh, things. my God. But yeah, this was this. Yeah, this was um, uh, pe- people over property, I think, was kind of the big, yeah. the big um heading that that this would have fallen under right and there's just this irony here because like if you don't support the small businesses in your neighborhood do you know what's going to happen they're all going to be owned by amazon which is such a amazon (laughs) is such a boogeyman in seattle you would think people would do more to support the small like queer owned bipoc coffee shop anyway there's a lot of sympathetic coverage both there and with this case in portland And people wanted to help this family get their house back. And so a fundraiser was set up with the specific aim of helping them buy it back. Um, Wait, can we back up for a second? Yeah. Uh, Who are they buying it back from? Okay, so it turned out that the owner of the house was a Ukrainian immigrant. He's an investor. He bought the house at auction in 2018 for $260,000. So he owned the house. Okay. He didn't he'd owned it for 2 years before this. His name was his name is Roman Azaruga, and on December 11th, the Oregonian reported that he was that this protest had led to an overwhelming amount of negative attention towards him, and he was worried about his family's safety. And so he offered to sell it back to the fa- to the Kinney family at cost. Okay, so they raised all this money on GoFundMe. The guy who owns the house is willing to sell it back. Did they do it? No, they did not. At least immediately. Okay, <laughs> they did start to negotiate with the owner, and they agreed that the barricades would come down and the roads would be reopen around the area if the city wouldn't continue to try to enforce the eviction. So things were looking up, sort of. But then more information came out about the situation, and public sentiment started to shift somewhat. 
So the neighbor we spoke to said, quote, when the Red House first started, most people varied from very supportive and outraged by the eviction to quietly supportive or supportive, but thinking that there more must be more to the story. Mm-hmm. If anyone on next door happened to voice the latter sen- sentiment, they were quickly branded as white supremacist. But as this went on, she said, quote, people who had businesses or lived in that section were basically hostages as they couldn't really get in or out easily. They certainly couldn't drive in or out. And even walking out, they had to prove to some 22-year-old who was standing guard that, yes, my two-year-old and I do live in that house right here. So most people were losing patience. And then reporters actually started digging a bit deeper. They started doing their jobs. So Oregon Public Broadcasting, the local NPR station, they published a story headlined, Family at Center of Red House Protest Owns Second Portland Home. Oh, no. (laughs) So it turns out that the Kinneys owned another home in in Northeast Portland, and they were living in that, which obviously complicated the narrative that they were going to be homeless if they were evicted. But here's the amazing thing. So OPB, they do their job, right? And if this is true, this is obviously a newsworthy element of the story. But William Nietzsche, he called their reporting racist. He said this on Twitter, quote, we need to check some facts and racism, dot, dot, dot. Kinney's do not own a second home. He said that the other home in Northeast Portland was owned by his grandparents and that, quote, to imply that all four generations of Kinney's must all live in the, se- the same home or be second home owners is an absurd and racist double standard in a society where it's common for adult children to live separately from their parents. So he demanded a correction and an apology, and he sort of got it. Because if you go to the Oregon Public Broadcasting story now, mm-hmm. there's an editor's note. Here's what it re- here's what it says. Quote, this story is factually correct, but the article and the headline are problematic because we failed to explain something vital. Why OPB reporters and editors considered this detail relevant enough to note in a news story. They also published a longer apology that ends, quote, we apologize and pledge to learn from this mistake, which is a slight twist on the classic do clap, better clap. I mean, I do think um, I might I might regret saying this, but I think William Nietzsche's point of like it could still be wrong that the Red House is being uh, that we're being evicted from the Red House, even if we own one, two, three, four houses. I don't I mean, I think True. there's definitely just because you have another house. Speaking, speaking as a second homeowner, just kidding, I don't own one home. But um, I obviously think this is an important piece of reporting, but I take his point that it could still be wrong that they're being evicted from the Red House. Sure. Uh, if they're even if they have another one, I will say there was an amazing uh, another an additional line in the apology, which read that the headline lacked the requisite nuance, and the story itself should have included more detail about the long history of racist policies in Portland and its real estate industry. And it's like, how like, how long do you want the story to be? Like, I mean, everything's got to have a history. Yeah, everything has to have a, a, a long history and everything must include every, you know, racist thing that happened uh, within the real estate industry in Portland. To to, to, to to meet our standards. So the most comprehensive reporting on the whole situation came from the, the Oregonian. On December 15th, they published a piece called Portland Family's Path to Red House Foreclosure, Foreclosure Was Long, Filled with Bizarre Twist. And that is not an understatement. So I'll try to sum up the reporting here. Basically, what happened is that after William Kinney Sr. bought the house in 1955 in cash, because again, black people were excluded from loans, so they owned it, owned it outright. They sold the house to their son in 1995. Then in 2002, William Kinney III, so that's William Nietzsche, 
He ran a stop sign in his car, and he killed an 83-year-old man named Frank Ertz, who, in a sad twist, was a well-known and very beloved social justice activist in Portland. Ah. So, yeah, Nietzsche, he was driving on a suspended license at the time. He was charged with manslaughter, reckless driving, felony hit and run, and sentenced to five years in prison. He pled guilty, but his parents took out a subprime loan against their house to pay his legal fees. Mm. His legal fees were around $26,000, but they took out a loan for almost $100,000 more than that, and it was a bad loan. It was rate-adjusted rather than fixed, so the interest rate went up over time. This is the exact thing that led to the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis with millions of people losing their jobs and their homes. Anyway, the, the Kinney's paid off that loan for 13 years. Their interest rate actually went down because they paid on time. And then in December 2016, their loan was sold. This is really common with home loans. The homeowner has no say in this. One day you just get a letter in the mail saying that you need to write your check to someone else. That's what happened with the Kinney's. And then just a couple weeks later, they got another letter. And this one said that their loan servicer had changed again to a company called Rushmore. I'm going to read you from the Oregonian here. Quote, the Kinney's have said they were confused about who to pay with mortgage statements telling them to send a January payment to two different companies. So they stopped paying at all. Uh, they said that they were putting their mortgage payments in escrow. So that's like a separate bank account held by a neutral third party until the confusion could be resolved. But it's unclear that they actually put any money in escrow. Um, so when William, when William Nietzsche was explaining this, they did get a bad loan. They got the subprime loan, but it, this was not, mm. they did not get the loan to pay off the house. They got the loan to pay his legal bills because he killed a man. <laughs> yeah. He conveniently. Driving on a suspended license. Right. He conveniently, he, he killed an 83-year-old man and severely injured his wife. He neglected to mention any of this. Details, details, details. <laughs> don't, you know what? You don't want to add, complicate the narrative. Simple is better. Right, right. Especially because he's so good at presenting right. the narrative yes. as it is. Right. <laughs> So in Oregon, if a foreclosure is likely, some lenders are required to undergo mediation with the homeowner with the goal of resolving the situation and avoiding eviction. The goal is to keep people in their homes. Uh, this is either through changing the terms of the loan or a short sale or something else. But the Kinneys refuse to participate in this process. And this is where shit gets weird. So Rushmore, the loan servicer, they sent Kinneys a letter about this mediation program. And this is from the Oregonian, quote, a week later, the Kinney's son, so that's William Nietzsche, returned the form marked void with a letter signed by his mother, quote, Julie Ann, House of Metcalf Kinney, sovereign living soul, holder of the office of the people. Oh, boy. The letter said she was a declared living American sovereign standing with the treaty law of God. It said the company had no jurisdiction without an international treaty within my republic state and that the company was not chartered to do business in Oregon by my republic state. Wait, so... William Nietzsche is part of the sovereign citizen movement. Please explain what that is. I bet he's Moorish. This makes complete sense. Oh, wow. Okay. So the sovereign citizen movement sort of has two factions. Not two factions. There's a lot of like different forks of it. Basically, people who, uh, wow, this makes so much sense. This is so exciting. A, re a real Moorish guy in the wild. Um, so it it's basically a movement that of people and you kind of get here quickly if you're into QAnon or, or globalist conspiracy theories that, you know, the world is run by uh, lizard people at the World Economic Forum, that uh, America is an, has an illegitimate government and therefore you don't have to um, abide by any of the laws, rules and regulations. There's a group in Texas. They're called Texians. Um, they print their own licenses and they do this thing where if like, let's say they get a summons from a court, they'll 
you know, write back that it's void. They'll say that, you know, because America is no longer on the gold standard, it's illegitimate. And, oh, this is this is awesome. They don't get Social Security numbers. They sort of believe that the government has a a pot of money for every citizen. I mean, it's it's extremely right wing, but it's kind of incredible that (laughs) that the person all of uh, that a lot of Portland rallied around is a sovereign citizen. And specifically, the Moorish sect is sort of the black sect of sovereign citizens. It's really popular in prisons. Well, he went to prison. Yeah, for obvious reasons, because it's like they have no right to arrest you. Right. Uh, the thinking is that you can't really be imprisoned because you're not a citizen of America. You're a Moorish citizen. Uh, and it has to do with Morocco, too, that somehow all of these citizens are connected to Morocco, which makes sense because in the video, he's uh, like uh, draping the Moroccan flag and he invokes the 1986 treaty between Morocco and the United States. I mean, this is this is textbook. I mean, I, I, incredible. Wow. Okay. So he's basically an ultra libertarian. Yeah. Oh my God. He, (laughs) like, they think that, like, there's a cabal that runs the banks. Um, Well, that's true. Well, yeah, that is kind of (laughs) true. And and they, and it's kind of like I sort of think of them as like hardo hippies. It's like mm-hmm. they don't think the rules of society apply to them, but only because, you know, someone signed the Declaration of Independence wrong or something like they go through these like weird loopholes uh, to say that, oh, actually what the bank did was illegal and the judge is the real criminal and therefore I don't have to repay the loan. Um but yeah, this is this is hardcore right wing stuff. I mean, I, I actually I had opened the Oregonian uh, who had uh, had a piece where they quoted from Kinney's Facebook page where he talks about the fall of the Democratic deep state, the globalist agenda. Uh, he he wrote in all caps, Mama, there go those extraterrestrial effects again. We stopped the foreclosures. Now it's time to stop the treason. We the people are sovereign, immune to the coronavirus. Fair enough. Does that work? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he's talking. Yeah, he, he posts clips from Fox News uh, with Laura Ingram talking about Biden's globalist agenda. I mean, oh, this is amazing. The fact that this that this is the, the person that Portland leftists rallied around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is a far right actor. So this was not this was actually not the first time that William Nietzsche tried this sovereignty argument. So he permanently lost his license in 2002 after killing that 83 year old man and severely injuring his wife. But he kept driving and he was busted for driving without a license and possession of cocaine in 2007. Then he skipped his court date. Well, of course he kept driving. He's He's he's, sovereign. Those rules don't apply to him. Uh, So there was a warrant out for his arrest. And then he got busted uh, in 2010 when, again, he was driving. And at his sentencing, he declared that he was a, quote, remnant of the divine people and a sovereign citizen who answers to God, not the state of Oregon. And he was apparently so disruptive in court that the judge held him in contempt of court 12 times. To be fair, sovereign citizens don't consider it driving. They consider it traveling. And that's under a different jurisdiction. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the laws of the air. Yes. So William Nietzsche's claims of sovereignty, they did not help him in that battle with the loan servicer. Surprise, surprise. 
And then by 2018, they owed $112,000 on the loan. And then October of that year, the house was sold at auction for, again, $260,000 to Roman Azaruga, uh, which is well more than the house itself was worse. It's basically a teardown at that point, but well less than the value of the property because it's in a very hip neighborhood in Portland. Uh, so at that point, Roman owned the house, but some of the family continued to stay there. They were basically squatting and he, while William Nietzsche continued this legal battle. And he sued a whole bunch of people and entities, including Roman Azaruga, the state of Oregon, which he called the Oregon Corporation in his filings. He sued the United States. He calls it the United States Corporation Company. He sued basically everybody he could. And Tracing Woodgrains, our furry researcher, he got the court filings, and one includes the sentence, quote, you have falsely accused me of being a citizen of the United States, and it will probably not surprise you that the trial and appellate courts dismissed all claims with prejudice, which means he could not refile the claims in the same court. Uh, he did, however, try to refile again in 2020, and again, the case was dismissed. It's funny because when you're a sovereign citizen, you, you kind of have to spend a lot of time tangling yourself with the government, it seems. I right. Mean, wow. That's right. incredible. He should have just moved to Idaho and joined the other guys in the militia. I know. I, I Oh, wow. I, we, have, we have a great story, actually, on the free press about uh, the growing sovereign citizen movement. They have their own currency. They mint their own coins. Really? It's, yeah. It, it's really amazing. Um, it's Is it a physical currency or like Bitcoin? There, there is a Bitcoin element. I mean, look, this is like this is horseshoe theory, baby. This is the middle. And, and I think uh -huh. a lot of stories in Portland are kind of where the horseshoe meets. But, you know, it's this is it's an amazing story about a person who is a conspiracy theorist and how that kind of weirdly aligned with the politics and the tenor of Portland at the time and it just isn't what it seems at all on the surface. But I think what it really is, is just how one sort of crazy person or son in this case of a family can take what could have been a really great thing, which is a house that was worth a lot of money and totally ruined it and made a fool of himself and his family in the process. And how a bunch of probably well-meaning people, particularly white people, were easily conned into this because they have this immense sense of guilt. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> because I, frankly, they probably don't do that much research. I mean, I think like Portland is kind of where good intentions go to die or good intentions mm -hmm. go to get like smushed into a brick to pave the road to hell. Um, what happened with the house? So for a few years, basically nothing. After Roman Azaruga, after he agreed to sell the Kenny family back the house, the barricades came down, the protests petered out, uh, the, the road reopened. The GoFundMe for the family ended at $315,000, but there's been no visible developments to the property and it still looks like the site of an occupation. So our neighborhood correspondent sent us a recent photo of it. Susie, will you describe this? Okay, I'm seeing... Some, you know, Toyota Camrys, it looks like, parked in front of uh, a cute... There's a PT Cruiser. Oh, is that a PT Cruiser? I didn't... <laughs> yeah. How did you not recognize Don't a PT Cruiser? Don't lie to cruiser? them. I... Look at that body. <laughs> oh, no. Ugh, PT Cruiser. Um, this is like the mascot of Portland, probably. I see a kind mm -hmm. of... I, that's actually a Subaru. It's strange <laughs> that there's a PT Cruiser. I'm seeing um, a, a condo that looks like you could hear your neighbor's... Um, every conversation through the walls of it. It looks right. like it's made in with like balsa wood and like a prison. I'm sure it's really overpriced. It's also probably got a really nice rooftop garden. That's true. With some string lights that you could, um, if you sign up at the at the 
the sign-up sheet in the lobby, you might get 30 minutes to cook a hot dog up there. Um, Lots of Amazon packages in the lobby. Oh, yeah. It's like bursting through. Um, And then to the left, we have this adorable or maybe once adorable red house. I see a little bit of graffiti on it. Uh, It looks like the top window is kicked in and has been kind of boarded up. And then there's signs on the sort of wraparound porch. It says indigenous solidarity for black liberation. Uh, The word gentrification with a line through it. It says stop the foreclosure. And then uh, I think on the corner, it's domicile the land and land back. Um, So incredible. And I mean, it's sad. This this house. um, That's what I see. That's what I see in the picture. Yeah, it looks like a the house looks like a teardown. Yeah. Uh, so the neighbor says there are squatters living there now. I tried to find out who currently owns the house, so I reached out to Roman Azaruga. He didn't answer. But I also searched public records, and I found something interesting. It appears that the house was sold in November of 2023, so just a couple months ago, for $345,000. And interestingly, the current owner is listed as Kenny Ross Metcalf Enoch International, which is, of course, the family name. So I reached out to members of the family, including William Nietzsche, to see if, in fact, they did buy the house back, but I didn't hear back from them. So I can't say for certain who currently owns the property, but it is definitely possible it is, in fact, the Kinney family, and they just didn't tell anyone that this just, like, did not make news. Um, I'll be very curious to see what happens to the property. As of now, it's in shambles, but I'm sure a developer would absolutely love to tear it down and put up some condos. So whoever does own it could really stand to make a pretty penny. And I'm sure all the people who reported about the fact that these were, you know, racial allies protecting uh, the the family from being evicted during a global pandemic, I'm sure they've all come out and issued mea culpas considering this is a person who thinks he lives on... Uh, United States yes, corporation yes. land. Yeah. And, and bigger picture, wow. the fact that the family didn't immediately take the money and buy the house back, plus the fact that it turns out they just weren't paying their loans and the fact that they had to get the loans because William Nietzsche killed a man, then uh, that's why they lost the house in the first place. It, this, When all of this came out, it does seem to have soured some of the locals on the situation and the BLM protests more broadly. So our neighborhood correspondent said, quote, a lot of people involved in the campaign to raise money for them were pretty angry and disillusioned when the, they didn't buy it back right away and just seemed to pocket right. the money. And uh, you can see why. The Hunter Biden of North Portland right here <laughs> is, is what we got going on. I feel, I feel bad for the Kinneys. Yeah, I mean, the other members of the family were pretty quiet about this. But they do seem to have been sort of led by their possibly crazy son. I get it, though. You watch the video and you're kind of like, okay, we must hold the judge in contempt of court. Like, let's do a citizen's arrest. Maybe that's next. (laughs) Any questions? Um, Any questions? So so are... It sounds like no one's living in the house now. Well, the neighbor thinks that there are squatters living in the house, but the house is not does not look like it's in much of a livable condition. I, I love this story, Katie, because at the end of the day, what is a no cop autonomous zone other than a sovereign state? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> All right, Susie, where can people find you? Um, People can follow me on Twitter at Snoozy Weiss. They can also follow my reporting at the Free Press. That's thefp.com. You can subscribe and get content delivered to your inbox every day. Yes, Barry's my sister, but it's not nepotism because we're friends separately. (laughs) You're not a nepo sister? You don't identify as that way? (laughs) 
You'd think there'd be more perks to being a Nepo sister. I'm working too hard. <laughs> you would think so. Well, Susie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a delight to talk to you. Uh, this has been great. Thanks, Katie. We'll put links to some of Susie's work in the show notes and check her out at the Free Press. This has been Blocked and Reported. Our show is produced, as always, by Tracing Woodgrains and Jessica, the 80s baby. I'm Katie Herzog, and we will be back next week with another guest host. 